Welcome to Mind of State, a podcast for both political junkies and armchair shrinks. I'm psychoanalyst and trauma therapist, Betty Tang. And I'm communication strategist and political hack, Jonathan Kopp. Join us as we welcome experts in politics and psychology to consider this, the state of our nation through the state of our minds and the mind of our state. Hi, Betty. Hi, Jonathan. So this week, we're going to talk about voting on mind of state. We're going to the state side of things. So tell me why talk about voting. Look, from my perspective, voting is the foundation of our democracy. It's the foundation of civic participation. We've got election day coming up, but the fact is we are here in voting season right now. It is election day every day because people are actually lining up and voting. Yeah, my side of things, it's causing a heck of a lot of anxiety and people are worried about the safety of voting health-wise. They're worried about the safety of voting in terms of conflict and strife at polls. They're worried about the accuracy of results. You know what? They better be stressed. They better be anxious because voting matters. I think we've seen there are outcomes and consequences that are real. I think also one piece of this is how technology continues to push not only voting, but campaigns. And what better way to discuss this topic, but with an expert on not only voting, not only democracy, but on technology and its impacts on both. So it is my pleasure to welcome Nate personally to Mind of State. Nate is a recognized expert on election law and redistricting. He's a professor at Stanford Law School. In his latest book, Social Media and Democracy, he examines the impact of changing technology on democracy. Currently, he's focused on the medical health aspects of voting during this pandemic through his aptly named project, HealthyVoting.org. Welcome to Mind of State, Nate. Thanks for having me. It's terrific to have you here, Nate. I can't think of a more pressing topic at a more poignant moment. And I want to start off the conversation by really speaking right to this moment. Your, your work focuses on the internet's impact on democracy. And so we're hoping that you're going to help ground us in some of the realities that we're dealing with, social media, democracy, the health of voting, so that we can process this moment uh, a little bit more clearly and rationally. You know, and something to add to that is to ground us in some terms, because some of us non-technical folks see social media as a bunch of different things. What do you define as social media specifically? Well, I think uh, when we think of social media, we're, we're thinking about peer-to-peer uh, connection of, of information, right, mediated by some kind of algorithm. Sometimes that algorithm could be very thin, say, uh, you know, text messaging through WhatsApp and the like is, is a form of social media. Sometimes it's much thicker uh, with Facebook's algorithms or, or uh, Twitter's and the like. But the key feature that makes media social is that it's from others to you and it's not uh, uh, sort of being delivered and curated in the same way that it was when we were talking about TV and the like. So you're really focused on the social space within the broader digital space. And and it's safe to say mostly the major platforms, Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and TikTok and Instagram and so forth, or more long tail? Well, I think uh, what you left off one, which is YouTube, which is actually an important sort of social media uh, force. Look, the, Facebook is, is first among equals here in terms of its impact on... Uh, 
you know, people's conversations and the like. And when I say Facebook, I include Instagram and WhatsApp because the suite of products is in under one roof. But, you know, each platform is different. Each product is different. And so when we talk about whether the beneficent or pernicious effects of social media, we have to be pretty specific about the platform we're talking about and the affordances of that platform. What is it about the way people interact on that platform that then has either, you know, consequences for their psychology or for um, democracy generally. And just one other question on the on the specifics here. There's our peer-to-peer engagement across social, but of course, so much concern right now about advertising, about the paid presence and paid content in social. Where is your work focused? Is it both? It is both. I actually started getting interested in the effect of technology and democracy because of political advertising. As as Betty mentioned at the beginning, you know, most of my work before seven or eight years ago was at, you know, looking at the nuts and bolts of elections, whether it's political parties, redistricting, voting rights, election administration, and the like. Um, but it became clear about seven or eight years ago that the transition to the internet was going to fundamentally alter not just political conversation, but paid media, and then how we should think about paid political advertising. And this was at the same time that we were dealing with, you know, the famous case of Citizens United, which uh, upheld corporations' right to run, you know, advertisements. But very few people realized that that case was about an on-demand movie, right? It wasn't actually about a political advertisement. And that's relevant because it sort of set the stage for a lot of these questions about, well, is it a difference if people can download things as opposed to having them thrust in their face in a 30 second television ad? And so uh, I think the sort of technological questions that were implied by Citizens United were sort of underappreciated, but they, but they did hint toward what we were going to see in the internet age. And now, you know, seven years later, we're dealing with, you know, billions of dollars that are being spent on targeted political advertising, and it's it's quickly going to replace television as the main mode of political communication. I have a question about that, Nate, because, um, you know, I heard the psychology of the technology's impact on us and this paid advertisement and how it impacts us from your research and from your assessments. How are we being impacted by these paid advertisements, by, by social media? If it is peer to peer, we're just interacting with each other. And yet there is these corporate, um, impacts inclusive of international corporate or international bodies getting into our our platform. So how is this stirring us psychologically? How are we being impacted or influenced? Well, I don't think we know yet the impact of of say advertising, online advertising in particular on people's, you know, whether it's levels of anxiety or or other psychological phenomena. But um, l- let me just talk about some stuff that we do know is that let, let's take the Russian ads that were purchased in the 2016 election, right? We know that about 80% of those ads were targeting on issues of social division, right? So they were trying to inflame division, inflame passions on issues of race, issues of religion, gun rights, immigration, and the like. And so there was there's very little subtlety in in those ads. Now, I think that the the influence of Russian ads per se has been blown out of proportion. I mean, they spent roughly $100,000 on Facebook ads and during that period. And look, if you could swing a presidential election with just $100,000 worth of paid ads, you know, a lot of political consultants have been doing some stupid things for some time. But, 
But having said that, right, you know, when you spend $100,000 on ads, it multiplies because of the social nature of the platform. It doesn't just end with the advertisement that's received by the viewer, right? It can get, get forwarded. It can then um, metastasize around the internet, that, which is why millions of people, tens of millions of people ended up seeing those ads. But on, on the basic question of like, what makes social media different in terms of sort of political anxiety, I would put it this way, which is that the social part of social media privileges virality, right? So so the kind of communications and strategies and candidacies that are more likely to be forwarded right, to, to different people are the ones that then get privileged in that atmosphere. And we do know that the kinds of communication that appeal to outrage and appeal to emotion generally are the ones that are more likely to be forwarded through social media. And so whether it's advertising or organic content, if you try to evoke emotion, right, particularly strong emotions, it's going to be privileged. That is exacerbated by the algorithms themselves where, where, where they continue to feed you things that you've engaged with before, right? So if you find something, you know, quote, engaging, right, then the algorithm is going to try to give you similar content uh, in the future in order to keep you on the platform. What you said about the virality of social media as a way that things metastasize reminds me of something that you wrote back in 2017. What the internet uniquely privileges above all else is a type of campaign message that appeals to outrage or otherwise grabs attention. The politics of never-ending spectacles cannot be healthy for democracy, nor can a porousness to outside influences that undercuts the sovereignty of a nation's elections. Democracy depends on the ability and the will of voters to base their political judgments on facts. So this virality and the, the spectacle. Nate, can you talk to us about how our own attention is almost betraying us? In a neuroscience fashion, we're drawn towards what is scary or fear-driven or even angering. We will go towards that in an evolutionary brain way. So are our brains being hacked? And is that affecting the democracy of the United States? Well, if you think that Democratic deliberation requires some kind of rational discussion and evaluation of costs and benefits in a kind of, I won't say nonpartisan way, that's not the right way to think of it, but in, in a kind of rational way as opposed to an overly emotional way, right? Mm -hmm. Now, emotions have always been part of democracy and politics. We're not trying to sort of undersell that. The question is whether we're processing information in a way where we depend on the facts, right? And we can evaluate the facts. Now, if uh, instead, because of what we're seeing on our screens and because um, of the, the way candidates and strategies are adapting to that environment is really the same way they would deal with entertainment, right, or fiction, right? Well, that that is not healthy for democratic deliberation and decision making. And so the blurring of news and entertainment that necessarily happens online because the intermediaries are taken away, uh, mm -hmm. the fact that we have stripped the information environment of the social cues that we have in the in the offline world, right? So for example, if you go to a supermarket checkout counter and you see a newspaper that says Hillary Clinton involved in pizza-related pedophile scandal, right? <laughs> you can you can evaluate, you know what kinds of newspapers are there 
as you go to the checkout counter. These are tabloids. You don't take them seriously. They're going to have stories about aliens and the like. When these stories come at you on your Facebook feed, stripped of all the other kind of identifying information, right, you then are just relying on it just like you would any other kind of communication because they come at you in the same context as your your nephew's graduation video, you know, a, a tabloid story about Beyonce, um, a Paul <laughs> Krugman op-ed or a Breitbart story, right? They're all packaged essentially the same way, whether it's in search results on Google or Twitter's newsfeed or Facebook's newsfeed, right? And so um, you just lose some of the the sort of credibility cues that we have in the offline world when they get repackaged in the online world. So are are you arguing that social media has hurt democracy? The original promise, of course, of the internet was to be the great equalizer, right? We were going to be in this massive ongoing town hall conversation that was non-hierarchical and everyone had to say, but have we gone wrong? Well, I, I mean, I think what you're hitting on is is that the most democratic features of the internet and social media pose real challenges to democracy, right? And so it is the leveling effect, the removal of intermediaries, the fact that we don't have guardrails on political conversation, which is both the great virtue of the internet and and also its greatest challenge when it comes to politics. Now, just because we have these downsides to social media doesn't mean that the upsides still aren't there. I mean, the way we're thinking about it in this discussion is very US focused, right? But if you're living in an authoritarian regime, right, where where you have top-down control of the information environment, clearly, you know, having social media as a way of liberating you know, information transfer from the the authoritarian intermediaries. You know, even in dem- democratic environments, right? It wasn't that long ago that we had four white males who were controlling the evening news and then deciding what would be truth, right? And that definitely excluded you know large swaths of the population from from being seen and heard by their peers. And so it ends up being a mixed bag, right? And so we need to understand the downsides and try to amplify uh, the upside. So neither the utopians of the internet age were correct, nor were those who, who are preaching the apocalypse now. These are tools that you need to harness to make sure that they have sort of pro-democratic ends. So then how would you say, if we do take a global view, I mean, how do we stack up? You know, we think of the American democracy as the the leader. Are we a healthier democracy or less healthy than other democracies around the world? Well, we are unhealthy, uh, but social media is just a small part of that right now. I mean, you need only look at at people's faith in the democracy in the United States and how it's declined over the last, you know, five years plus years. And, uh, you know, that's, these are worrying signs, let alone the fact that, that we have had on two occasions in the last 20 years and perhaps soon more political leaders who get the minority of the vote, but end up ruling, right? So if you have a basic baseline of majority rule, uh, we are not uh, satisfying that. Uh, Also, there are other countries and electoral systems that are better capable of managing division, Right. And so while our polarization is sort of being channeled into the two party system here, which is not healthy because it creates a kind of dichotomous us versus them, whereas in more pluralized electoral systems, you can have a greater diversity of parties, coalition building, horse trading, uh, which our political system doesn't allow. In terms of that health of democracy and the fact that we over the last, I think, 20 years, um, have seen only 50% of people, if that, 
vote in the most popular elections, like the presidential elections. What does voter disenfranchisement tell us about people's faith in voting? And and how is that going to play out this year in terms of how we're approaching November 3rd? Well, I think you're going to see very high rates of turnout in this election, despite all the incredible obstacles, both sort of intentional and partisan or unintentional and pandemic related that are being placed in their way. Um, and so I think we had a bit of a, a drop in 2016, but now uh, people are pretty energized. And, you know, voter turnout has waxed and waned over the last 20 years. So the Obama elections, the first one in particular, uh, saw a surge in turnout. There are lots of reasons for our comparatively low turnout as compared to the rest of the world. A lot of it has to do with the fact that we require people to re-register every time they move their address and one out of four Americans moves every two years. And so that that aspect of our electoral system is one that depresses turnout. The same is true with districted elections as opposed to proportional representation elections and probably even the presidential system depresses it. Uh, but, you know, we also have more elections than almost any other country in the world. Maybe Switzerland's the only one that <laughs> competes with us on this. So there is a bit of, of fatigue sometimes when it comes to uh, voting. But you know, I think that this year we're going to see certainly 60% of eligible voters will turn out. Uh, it may be more than that. So a you know, prediction of 60% voter turnout sounds like a more optimistic expectation than I'm hearing in other places. What do you know that we don't? Well, it really depends on 60% of what, right? Is it 60% of the voting age population, the eligible voting population or registered voters? Right. We'll certainly have at least 60 percent of registered voters are, are going to end up turning out. Um, we will have, as you know, so the historic statistics suggest only about half of the voting age population is going to turn out. But a lot of that includes people who are not eligible to vote, uh, non-citizens, people who are in prison and the like. Uh, and so I think it will still be high turnout as compared to 2016. But it's still a shame that, you know, more than a third and maybe 40% of those who could vote don't turn out. What's motivating us? Is it is it the pandemic? <laughs> is it Black Lives Matter movement? Is it all these multiple crises seeking change? Are we really looking for a change election? As Jonathan often quotes, that elections are about either change or stay the same. So what are you seeing as the bump in that turnout? There are sort of push and pull reasons for, for turnout. I mean, one of them is that people either love or hate Donald Trump. And so that ends up leading to, you know, emotional voting. Uh, also, the, the political parties, you know, people are energized and well-funded to get the vote out. And so I think that, you know, when the, the parties are even more motivated to get people out to vote. But, you know, you're going to see more of those efforts in the battleground states, not necessarily overall. And so, for example, we don't really know what the pandemic's voter turnout effects are going to be for those who are traditionally going to vote in person, right? Are there going to be people who are going to not vote because of risk to health. And of course, there's a lot of controversy over the basic mechanics of voting, whether you're talking about post office and, and absentee ballots or uh, polling places and poll workers. And so we, you know, that is a bit of a curveball that we can't predict. You know, Democrats are not like extremely enthusiastic about Joe Biden, but they are generally motivated to vote against Donald Trump. And so you know, the question is, does that emotion translate into greater motivation to vote? Well, I guess the question in, in my mind is, where does that motivation or lack of motivation rub up against the, the various forms of voter suppression and disenfranchisement? You talked about the mechanics, the sort of the structural and the de jure reasons why 
it's difficult for people to vote, but at the same time, you're expecting a higher than average turnout. The piece that, that I think is the wild card in this election are the indirect measures of disenfranchisement, the constant messaging about the lack of faith in our voting system. And so I'm wondering how those messages are going to play into uh, the question of voter turnout. That's a very good question. And we really don't know the answer. I mean, I think that um, people are alienated, right? You have roughly half of the electorate says that they would not trust the outcome or that they're worried that the election will be rigged. Most of those are Democrats, but a sizable number of Republicans as well believe that. And and it doesn't help that the president is is raising that, you know, specter in his Twitter feed. But it's not clear that we have kind of reached the levels that you see, say, in developing countries, developing democracies, where it almost leads to an election boycott of sorts, where people say, oh, well, my vote's not going to make a difference, so therefore I'm not going to turn out. A lot of the people who are most alienated are also, strangely enough, the most motivated, right? Because they, they, are, they are angry at the system and they are still willing to, to try to vote. But, but it really you know, the jury is out on this. We don't know what voter turnout is going to look like this term. My prediction is that it's going to be quite high. Um, a lot of that is because of how engaged the groups are that that work on this. And there's space now. There's still time. How do we encourage those folks to come out if they're apathetic or is, are they sort of lost to the voting cause? No, I think that, the, you know, voter registration efforts begin the first week in September because there's a lot of people who've not been paying attention to this election uh, and they start paying attention as surprising as it might be to us after Labor Day. And so, you know, there, there are all these NGOs that are working right now to register more voters. And, uh, you know, there will be millions of people who will register in September and October who will end up voting. And we need to make sure that as many people get contacted as possible. Nate, do you think that the closeness of American elections that some 70,000 votes made the difference in 2016 and the fact that uh, the, the winner of the popular vote twice in recent memory has not won the election, does that energize people or does it turn them away? Well, I don't think it has a big effect on voter turnout. Um, it definitely, you know, feeds into feelings of illegitimacy of the election. And that that's a long-term concern of mine. Uh, and so if we continue to have minority winners of the popular vote uh, end up winning the Electoral College and, and being president, that I think poses a you know, threat to the regime in some respects, but that's derived from the lack of confidence that people have in the electoral system in general, right? And it's, you know, democracy is not healthy if the majority of the people don't trust the outcome. Uh, and we are hurtling toward that eventuality. But that's a structural problem, right? I mean, those in power don't give up power uh, without it being taken from them. And if our constitutional process requires those in power to change the rules, how do we fix this problem? The Electoral College is a very hard nut to crack, right? And so uh, there are workarounds that people are trying to enact into state law, something called the National Popular Vote Compact, which would lead states with large populations to commit to sending their electors uh, based on the national popular vote as opposed to what happens in their states. But mm. that that is, for the most part, an academic enterprise these days. <laughs> and you know, it, it's going to require a massive change in sort of a real landslide election 
uh, that would change composition of the, the Senate, the House and state legislatures to then effectuate that kind of constitutional change. And so where does technology fit in that question, right? I mean, that's your expertise, technology and voting and the Internet and voting. I think we initially thought that technology would improve our voting process, right? If we can bank by ATM, we should be able to vote from our mobile phones. Now it seems that we're rejecting technology. We want a paper trail. Uh, we don't trust, you know, the Internet with our voting. So where do you think we are in terms of that, that nexus of technology and voting? We are not going to vote over the internet anytime soon. Um, you need sort of robust confidence in the process in order to make that kind of move, which, you know, very few countries have. Estonia is one of them that's moved in that direction. Um, you may see some of the internet voting on sort of low information, local races, maybe some primary elections and the like. But you need only look at the debacle with the so-called Iowa caucus app, if you remember mm-hmm. this from the Democratic caucuses, that, uh, you know, even if something as simple as transferring information from the local caucus to the state database is that complicated, people are not going to be so trusting with their votes. Now, you, you raise some other issues about technology and voting, like the voting machines themselves, right? And so for the most part, as you say, in the last decade, we have now moved away from electronic voting machines, which were all the rage after the 2000 election debacle, where we replaced punch card ballots with more uh, sort of automated systems. But that's led to sort of worries about the lack of a paper trail, lack of auditability and the like. And so almost all jurisdictions have now moved to some kind of auditable paper trail. Um, I served on the National Academy of Sciences panel dealing with the future of, of voting. And I could say, you know, one of the things that we recommended was to make sure that there's auditability, that you have sort of a, a top to bottom check after every election to make sure that the systems are working as intended. One thing that I think both in 2016 and as in the run-up to 2020 that we've now recognized is that focusing just on the machines themselves, on the voting machines, is um, too myopic. And that's because there's a lot of technology in the process from the voter registration system to the electronic poll books to the election night reporting systems. And so if you worry about cybersecurity and the security of these systems, you have to worry about not just the active voting, but all those other links in the chain. And those are ones that, particularly now that these jurisdictions in in confronting the pandemic are buying all kinds of new technology, those are the things that worry me a little bit. Speaking of what's worrying you, what election day scenario keeps you up at night? What's going to happen on November 3rd? Well, first of all, the election has already begun. And that's because ballots are out. Uh, North Carolina mailed them out, you know, in the first week of September. Uh, So we should expect roughly half the votes to be cast even before November 3rd. So the thing that keeps me up at night are the worst case scenarios, which I want to emphasize are, are, they're still low probability events, right? But, but they're higher probability now than they've ever been. And so issues of election day violence are the things that keep me up at night because we have a greater risk of that happening now than we have had historically, um, as well as how with the relationship between the federal government and the states and local polling places, right? I mean, the president has threatened to use uh, federal authority in this area, which is unprecedented. So those are the things that, that keep me up at night. I mean, frankly, th- there's something that's called the election administrator's prayer which is, oh, God, whatever happens, please don't let it be close. Right? Because if, <laughs> if, if it's close, 
then all of the kind of fragile uh, aspects of our electoral system then come into full view. And so if it's a close election that, for example, is determined by absentee ballots in the Midwestern battleground states, that's the worst case scenario because there'll be a lot of conflict and litigation over that. Not to get too much into the constitutional machinery here, but you could end up with competing slates of electors for the Electoral College. And we've never really been in a situation like that. And given the background polarization of our politics right now, it's not as if reason is going to win the day here and say, oh, yes, I recognize that my opponent has won. Um, it then, you know, people will retreat into their tribes and process information that's more friendly to their outcome. And in this situation, Nate, you know, given that we're calling on you to ground us in in the situation as it stands so that we don't and our listeners don't go off into anxiety mode any any sooner or any more than necessary, um, how do we put those guardrails up on social media and use our minds and our uh, ability to reflect? Do we just unplug and not expose ourselves to the algorithms and the things that draw our fear centers and our anger centers to the outrage and the spectacles? How do we think about this and reflect rather than react? Well, I think that right now, social media is pretty much mirroring what's happening on cable news, which is mirroring what's happening in the larger society. So so it, it's hard to escape polarizing and emotional information right now, uh, whether it's about, you know, the fires in California or the pandemic or, or politics right now. So uh, it, it is very hard to escape. I do think those in a position of authority, um, whether it's in the media or or politics, do need to be vigilant about the problems that, that we see, but also emphasize that the basic infrastructure of the democracy is going to work. And so let me take an example of like something that's come up over the summer, which is the frailty of the postal service. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are worried right? That their ballot is not going to count uh, if they drop it in the mail, that there's going to be political manipulation and the like. And so while we need to have congressional hearings that hold the postmaster general to account, we need to make sure that everything is being done. I can tell you that if you talk to the local postal officials, right, they say this is not going to be as big a problem as it seems. Now, however, that doesn't mean that people should wait until the last minute to mail their ballot. Um, The message that should be sent is that, look, if you're going to vote by mail, vote as early as possible. And that's the safest way to make sure um, that your vote gets in on time. Because even before this election, even before the last year of issues with the Postal Service, the post office has not delivered mail ballots on time in many elections. So the the month or so that you have in order to vote when you get your mail ballot, right? If you wait until the last five to 10 days, you are risking that your ballot's not going to count. And so people need to vote as early as possible. So that that's the way of trying to say that, look, it is in your hands. You have the power to vote in a way where you know your vote is going to be counted. You just not have to follow these rules. Nate, how about people who are inclined to not vote by mail, but they're planning to show up in person. Uh, I'm thinking about your work on healthyelections.org, and I'm wondering what you can tell voters to reassure them about the medical health of voting in person. Are, are there some states that are better prepared or, or, or worse? Do the same rules apply about masks and social distance, or is voting different? 
Sure. So this is the the Stanford MIT Healthy Elections Project. Uh, I sort of have dropped most of my cyber work that I had expected to be dominant for this election and really been focusing on the kind of work that I did when I was the research director of the President's Commission on Election Administration after the 2012 election. And that was the commission that President Obama put together to deal with long lines on Election Day, as well as like, natural disasters and voting like Hurricane Sandy. Uh, we didn't predict that we'd have to deal with a pandemic in voting. So that was a, a, a void in that report. But uh, some of the same lessons apply. And so Charles Stewart and MIT and I started this project to work with local election officials to help them pull off this election. And first of all, I want to urge people to vote early in person if they can. Um, that is not only a safe way to get the vote counted or, you know, early, but it also relieves the burden on election officials so that we don't have the post-processing that is required for absentee ballots and the like, uh, as well as relieving the stress of in-person voters on election day. But, you know, the electoral system has adopted the same kinds of safety measures that larger society has, right? And so you will see, you know, blue pieces of tape every six feet outside a polling place, right? You will see masks that will be provided, hand sanitizer and the like, disinfectant for the voting machines. The CDC and the Election Assistance Commission have prescribed all kinds of uh, rules here. So, so they're prepared for this. And I think that, you know, it does add to the anxiety, uh, just as is true in any public setting that we engage in these days. But the election officials are, you know, prepared for this. And, and there's some new adaptations like this whole idea of arena voting, where you have some of the NBA teams that are contributing their arenas to make sure there's a lot of social distance when people vote. When you think about the preparations that states have taken, we're so balkanized in our in our electoral system. Are there states that are doing it better? Are there states doing it worse? There are states, right? There are states that were all vote by mail to begin with, places like Washington and Oregon, Utah, Colorado, and Hawaii that were 100% vote by mail. And so the pandemic doesn't really affect them all that much. And I should add that in places, even in places like Colorado, while we call them vote by mail states, 75% of Colorado voters actually deposit their ballot into a ballot drop box, not into a, into a mailbox. And then there are states like California and Arizona. California has moved toward all vote by mail for this election. When I say that, that they're going to make ballots available to everybody through the mail, even though there will be some polling places. And Arizona has historic rates around 80% of voting by mail. So they'll be able to adapt in ways that others can't. The, the ones that are of concern are the battleground states in the Midwest where you know, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania have historic rates of absentee balloting under 5%, Michigan, roughly 20%. Florida is actually quite well, I think, adapted to this environment. They have historically had a third vote by mail, a third vote in person, and a third vote on election day. It'll probably be roughly half a vote by mail, and maybe only 25% will vote on election day in person. Uh, so based on those sort of historic rates of polling place versus absentee balloting, you'll have different rates of preparedness. But on the question of, say, use of PPE and the adaptations of the polling places and all of that, everyone's getting the same instructions. And, and we've, we've worked with some election officials. If you go to healthyelections.org, you can see our guide to healthy polling places, which we've given out to local officials to, to help. And so in the short term, Nate, just even by your tone of voice, it sounds like we're doing everything we can and, and that we've got this. 
as much as we can get this. It's not chaotic. It's being managed um, even in the high infection rate states. But in the in the longer term, you know, looking at November the third and really beyond, like how do we sort of look at social media? How do we think about it? How can we be sane about this? How do we, you know, take some time so that we can choose leaders and take in our information in a way so that we can think about it rather than just react to the latest crisis. You know, you're talking about a, a critique of the media, it sounds like. Well, yes, there's some of that. And let me let me actually join that with Jonathan's question earlier about nightmare scenarios. So one of the things that is concerning, right, is if it is a close election on election night where we don't really know the winner, uh, and it will be determined by the processing and counting of absentee ballots in the succeeding week, how do we deal with that uncertainty, right? You talk about anxiety, right? There, There's the most anxious moment where we don't really know what the outcome is going to be. And if at the same time you have the candidates each declaring victory or one of them declaring victory and the other waiting, uh, that's particularly disconcerting because then there's going to be allegations that the election has been rigged, that there was fraud, or even that these absentee ballots shouldn't be counted because they're somehow inherently tainted, right? And so um, you asked me about afterwards, but we, there's a lot we can do to try to inoculate ourselves from that anxiety now, and that is to explain to people what that process is going to look like, what you know the, the, they can expect. Um, we've often thought of putting something up on our website called what to expect when you're expecting election <laughs> results, you know, and the idea is that, look, this is not unnatural. This is the way the process works, which is that you should expect that they're they're verifying signatures on these mail ballots. They're giving people an opportunity if there is a mismatch of their signature to come in and cure it. You know, historically, this is how long it has taken. And that doesn't mean that there's there's manipulation. We need the election officials to be transparent about what they're doing. But at the same time, we need, you know, and this is the hard part is we need this, this vote counting to occur under relative conditions of social peace, right? So that you don't have people trying to break down the doors of the canvassing boards and trying to interrupt the count. And so the media organizations have, you know, have a very important role to play here. Social media does as well. And I'll tell you, if you look at the voting information center on Facebook, they have uh, tried to provide information there that will counteract some of the most sort of conspiracy mongering that you see. Now, the truth is only elites who really care about elections are, are going into the voting information center. But what they are doing is they are also using the information that is there to then put alerts next to news articles that are referring to things like mail balloting and the like. So it's trying to dilute the impact of the most incendiary items that might appear there. In addition, you'll start seeing over the next month a series of videos that Facebook will be serving up on how to vote your mail ballot correctly, you know, in mm -hmm. order to have it counted, as well as reminders that are provided by election officials at the top of your feed. And so those are the kinds of things that we can do is to try to set the stage going forward to manage expectations in the event there's a crisis. That's great. That's great. I mean, Nate, you know, when I asked you to join us, I wanted you to sort of ground us and be our voting doctor. And you've really done it. Because when we work with those who are traumatized, we want to empower them and give them the information that they can do things for themselves. And so what you're doing right here, right now is telling us as voters what we can do and what we don't have to pay attention to because we don't know what 
that is really grounded in and just focus on our part, not everybody else's, you know, do the thing that we can do and go forward. I mean, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. We'll keep your words close in mind as we approach election day. And we'll be thinking about particularly the uh, activities in the battleground states. As I said, repeat the election administrator's prayer. Oh God, whatever happens, please don't let it be close. So with that, we'll go on. (laughs) Thanks for joining us on this episode of Mind of State. And thanks again to our guest, Nate Persley. You can find out more about his latest project at healthyvoting.org. If you like this episode, you'll find plenty more on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mind of State Pod. Our website is mindofstate.com. Mind of State is produced by Alita Cooper and Jenny Woodward. Special thanks to our co-founder, Thomas Singer. I'm Betty Tang. And I'm Jonathan Kopp. Join us next time on Mind of State.